You can take your Bibles this morning, open them with me to the book of James. James chapter 2, today and next Sunday. We're going to be studying James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Now last week, we worked through just two verses. Remember those? James 1, 26 and 27. I think those two verses are the central verses in the whole letter of James. So I want to take a look at them. Again, look at them with me. James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. It's to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In that little text, James provides three signs of authentic Christianity what we do with the tongue, how we show compassion toward the needy, and how we remain unstained by the world. All three of those are going to show up to one degree or another in the text this week and next. But, but I want to look specifically now. What is this next section about? What's the biggest idea of it? Look at James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and really you won't have to look long because you'll find it in the very first verse. James 2, verse 1. Listen to James. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. All right, listen again. This will be from, a, from an, another good translation. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that, that one verse tells us what all 13 verses are going to be about. This is a passage about partiality or showing favoritism. And James' call to Christians in the text is to repudiate or reject every kind of partiality. All 13 verses are about that one command. Now, it's worth noting. If I ask you, like, okay, so what other texts in the Bible talk about this topic? It would be interesting if we took some time and just tried to search the New Testament for other texts about this topic. For example, the words for partiality or favoritism in this, in this section only show up four times in the rest of the New Testament. And perhaps what's even more interesting is that if you look at all four other discussions of partiality or showing favoritism, they all say basically the same thing. Romans 2 is a good example. This is what all other four of them say. God shows no partiality. Okay? All other four are about God. About this fundamental truth about God. That God 
never shows favoritism, that there is no partiality with him. Yet this text isn't so much about God's impartiality, is it? This is perhaps the one and only text in the New Testament where the focus of the whole text is on how Christians must reject the sin of partiality. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It is, it is inconsistent to profess faith in Jesus and then be partial toward some people and against other people. It's inconsistent to say you love and honor Jesus and then to show preferential treatment towards certain people over other people, especially for things that they probably have zero control over. Now, one more thing about verse 1 before we move forward. Did you notice that James actually says the word Jesus in the text? You might think, I guess so, but I would not have put a lot of significance on that. I mean, lots of verses say Jesus, right? Well, of course, that's true, but I, I just want to point out something about James. If you look at the whole letter, okay. James rarely says Jesus by name. Or he rarely says Christ specifically. Do you know how many times he does that in James? In the whole letter? Two. The first verse of the book, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this verse right here. That's it. That's why some people say, like, you know, James doesn't have a lot to contribute about what we learn about Jesus or something. And I think that is not correct. And that is to miss that James, throughout the whole letter, is drawing on the words and teaching of Jesus. Perhaps more than any other letter you'll read anywhere in the New Testament. But it is interesting that he rarely specifically mentions Jesus, the Christ. But he does in this verse. He says, don't show partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now I want you to think about what he's saying about Jesus when he says that. And th this is his own brother. And what does he call Jesus? Like he called him Jesus throughout his whole life, right? They grew up together in Nazareth. But now what does he call him? And in fact, James himself did, did not call Jesus this. Even during Jesus' earthly ministry, if you remember, James was an unbeliever. Even when his brother was going around doing miracles and things like this. But now, after the resurrection, what does James see about Jesus? What do, his own brother, what does he call him? He says, you, you hold the faith in Jesus, the Christ. He's the, the promised king from the Old Testament. And then he calls his human brother, the Lord of glory. Imagine a Jew 
ever saying that about any human being. To call a human being that you saw throughout your whole life, that's the Lord of glory. Do you believe that about Jesus? Do you have faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the King, the Lord of glory? If, if you confess that with me, then listen. Don't show favoritism. That's, that's James' point. Now, we might be wondering, what exactly does he have in mind, though? Right? I mean, you can't have any favorites. Right? Like, I like the Pittsburgh Steelers. They're my favorite team. Maybe you like the Vikings. They're your favorite is that sinful? Is that showing partiality? And what does James actually have in mind? Wouldn't it be nice right, if, if James would sort of give us an illustration of like, what this might look like in real life to show partiality? Look at verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or, or sit down by my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's a great illustration. Okay, I want to make sure we follow it. Right? You've noticed the setting. Where is this happening? Do you notice that? Verse 2. This is taking place in your assembly, right? which probably just refers to a normal church gathering when those who confess faith in Jesus gather to worship. It says, you're in your gathering when this happens. Okay, in our day, we think of this very meeting that we're in right now. Okay? Now, notice so then there are two people who happen to come in to the meeting. James doesn't give a ton of details about them, but it seems to me like they're both visitors to the meeting because they seem to be a little bit unfamiliar you know, with what's going on where to sit, this sort of thing, probably unfamiliar to the regular people there. Other than that, though, James draws our attention to just one thing about them. He wants us to see what everyone's going to notice right away as soon as they walk in. James wants us to see what each of them is wearing, which, by the way, is almost never talked about in the New Testament. Okay, this is, but in this case... In this illustration, he wants us to see their clothing. First guy comes in wearing a gold ring. Or as some people like to point out, it, it kind of sounds in, uh, like he has a gold finger, if you look at the wording of it. So, so maybe he's got lots of gold rings, you know, or one, or, but whatever. What we know immediately, though, from that is what? What do we know? That guy is wealthy, Right? We know that. But it's not just that. I mean, look at this guy's clothes. Look at what he's wearing. Bright 
expensive clothing. The, the description of fine clothing, that sort of thing, uh, it's actually used elsewhere in the New Testament of like angels and some stuff that they, they wear. This guy is obviously really something. He's wealthy, powerful, important, and everybody knows it as soon as you see him. In fact, this person is likely dressed this way specifically so that everyone will notice him, just how wealthy and important he is. So you can imagine, he, he walks in, all the eyes turn to this man. People in the gathering maybe start to look at each other, really surprised that this guy would ever show up here with us. Perhaps someone like an usher knows it's the guy's first time here, so he takes him to his seat of honor in the gathering. He says, hey, you, you sit right here. It's a great place. But then there's this other guy that comes into around the same time on the same day to the same gathering. Perhaps we can imagine he comes in just a little bit later. He's apparently new as well to the gathering, but look at this guy. Shabby clothing. Other translations, filthy clothes. Maybe came right off the street and probably smells. This guy is a nobody, and everybody knows it as soon as you see him. Someone, perhaps like an usher, knows it's this guy's first time, so where does he take him? What does he say to him? You stand over there. Or, if you want, you sit down by my feet. That's, that is just one picture that James could have given of what partiality can look like in a church. And then he concludes the little story with a question. Haven't you then made distinctions among yourselves? And haven't you become judges with evil thoughts? Because you see, favoritism, showing favoritism, always involves making judgments between two people or groups of people. It always involves making judgments about their respective worth or status or perhaps their ability to help you get ahead in some way. Partiality always involves our thoughts and our reasoning, and James says that the thoughts that lead to favoritism in a church are evil thoughts. Partiality is not neutral. It is evil. And it contradicts a person's profession of faith in Jesus. But thankfully, this is just an illustration, right? This wasn't actually happening in the church. Surely Christians wouldn't actually do something like that. Look, look at verse 5. It says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. You listen to that last line. But you have dishonored the poor man. What do we learn from that? 
something really important and really sad. It's, it's here that we start to realize that that illustration isn't entirely hypothetical here. I mean, sure, the specific circumstances of the, you know, the brilliantly dressed guy and the shabby clothed guy at the same, I mean, maybe there's, it doesn't happen exactly like that. Maybe it was just for the sake of illustration in some ways. But if we ask, James, why did you give that illustration? Why are you focused so much on partiality? It's because it was actually a problem in the early church. It was actually a problem among people that he had shepherded before. In other words, there were professing Christians who gave preferential treatment toward those with status and dishonored those who didn't have status. And James says, listen, my beloved brothers. I mean, you can almost imagine James is a pastor of these people for a long time, like grabbing them by the shirt collar and say, listen to me, brother. What are you doing? Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? But you are shaming the poor. Now, there's a lot that we could talk about from that. I mean, for example, this is a great text about how God, of his own will, sets his love on particular people and mercifully chooses them to be heirs of this kingdom. I mean, you just think of that about that. If you belong to God today, it's not because you loved God first or chose God first. We don't sing, well, how would it go, you know? Before he loved me, I loved him. If, you're, if you belong to God today, it's because God loved you and chose you first. I mean, you think a lot about that, but the, but the main point in this text is very simple, actually. James is pointing out that the way they're looking at the poor is not the way that God looks at them. In fact, their way of looking down at the poor and insignificant in the world actually contradicts the way that God looks at those same people. God hasn't rejected the lowly. God certainly hasn't dishonored the lowly. No. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world to be the ones who are rich in faith? Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that every single poor person is going to end up being rich in faith in Jesus. It doesn't mean that every poor person is going to end up inheriting the kingdom of God. James knows that. Paul knows that. Jesus knows that. Yet it is the consistent teaching throughout the whole New Testament that those who come to Jesus are not typically going to be those who have it all together. They're going to be those who know how needy they are. Paul might chime in along with James and say, just consider your own church. Look around. How many of you are noble, wealthy, influential in the community, powerful, 
in the eyes of the world? Probably not very many. Why? Because God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. What's weak in the world to shame the strong. What's low and despised in the world. What's viewed as nothing to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being will ever boast in the presence of God. Do you know who the kingdom's going to be filled with? The glorious kingdom of Jesus. You know who it's going it's to be filled with? It's not going to be filled with a bunch of people who were somebodies here. It's going to be filled with people who had nothing, who were nothing in the eyes of the world, but who saw in Jesus everything they needed and were rich in faith. That's going to be the people, most of the people, the majority of the people, you read the New Testament, who are going to inherit the kingdom. So to put it plainly in this passage, James is telling his brothers and sisters, listen, when you show favoritism, you are not thinking the way God does. You're not acting the way God acts. And that raises the question, well, then where does this sort of thinking come from? Like, how is it that a Christian would ever get the idea that it might be okay to give preferential treatment to some people over other people? Especially based on whether they have much status. Where do you suppose that sort of thinking comes from? Perhaps the best answer to that is the world. Do you know what partiality among Christians is a sign of? It is a sign that those Christians have been infected or stained by the world. Now to our last verses for this morning, where James points out more or less that partiality isn't just worldly. It's dumb. Look at verse 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? I mean, imagine a church full of poor, insignificant Christians who are suffering. And all it takes is somebody important to walk in. And then they are starting to look for recognition, status. Maybe they long for a place at the table then. So they, they fawn over the rich and influential person who has condescended you know, to come into their assembly. I mean, you could imagine things like that. James is saying, what in the world are you doing? Aren't those rich people the very ones who are doing what? Oppressing you? Dragging you into the courts trying to get all that they can from you? Aren't they the ones who hate the name that's been called on you? Blaspheming the name of Jesus? See, we don't, we don't know everything that's going on here in the first century. But it's clear in James that one of the biggest trials that these poor Christians are facing is that they are being oppressed by influential, wealthy people around them. And just think of what James says. I mean, they're oppressing you. They drag you into court. And worst of all, they blaspheme the precious name by which you are called. 
And James asks, why would you show favoritism towards someone who very well might be one of them? And shame a poor man who's probably desperate just like you. As an older preacher and friend that I've listened to many times used to say, that is D-U-M, dumb. I think that doesn't make any sense. Now, originally, I had thought of covering all 13 verses of this section. But eventually, I decided to, to take it in two parts. Two reasons for that. One, this is pretty much the one and only text that focuses on this topic in the whole New Testament. So we need to be thinking about this for a while. Second, though, we, we, have, to, we have to have enough time to really think through this and what it means for our life and for the life of our church. I mean, what do you think? How does this text about favoritism apply to your own home and the people that you might welcome into your own home? Or, or maybe most in line with this text, how, how do you think this teaching about favoritism applies in our assembly, in our gatherings. Okay, now, I, I, want to, I want today to be a day where we start to think about that, but, but I'm going to give us a few of the things I'm already thinking about this, So I've been thinking about throughout the week. And one thing I want to, I want to clarify something. Okay, when it comes to partiality, I think it's important that we don't misunderstand what James is saying. Here's how we can misunderstand. I think the application of this text is not go out from here and be partial toward the poor. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. This, this text is not applied well by saying love the despised and despise the powerful. This text is about the sin of favoritism. So the application of the text isn't start showing favoritism. Just to different people. That that may seem obvious when I say it like that, but I'm not sure it's always grasped very well when we look at a text like this. So, Second thing, I think the initial application for, for today, the thing I want to focus on today, is how we look at and treat outsiders. This, this text applies also to how we treat those in the church. But I want to focus for, a few, for just a little bit on how we think about and treat outsiders. You know, there's people who are not normally here. Maybe they're visiting as a believer. Maybe they're an unbeliever. Maybe we have no idea because we just don't even know them at all. They just happen to show up in our worship gathering. And this could apply, you, you could apply all of these things to your own home and hospitality in your home. But I'm just going to take this one scenario of our assembly, people that might come in to our assembly. How do we view those who visit our church? Here are th- a couple things I think we ought to pray for and long for as a church. Okay. We want to be and ought to be 
an incredibly welcoming group of people. To all who would gather here on a Sunday or who would ever walk through the front doors of our home to a community group. And I want to encourage you, I'm not, I don't say this because I think that this is not happening here. I, it's one of the things that I praise God for because I often hear from visitors about the, re, the welcome or response that they receive from the body. And, and I would just praise God for how many times I have heard such wonderful things about the welcome and love that they've experienced when they've come. But yet we need a text like this to, to weigh heavy on us a bit and to press in on us and to really get us to think about how do I look at people that just come in that I don't know and, and am, how do I make judgments about them? Am I doing this? I mean, let's suppose for, ex- for one example that an unbeliever comes in and the person is particularly poor. This happens. You know what I would hope? I would hope that this person would feel more welcomed and that they would feel more love here than anywhere else in the whole community. But let's suppose a wealthy, individual, influential person came in, maybe like a governing official that we even pray for, on Sundays. Let's suppose that person came in. Or somebody who we can tell this person probably has tons of money. How should he or she be treated? That person ought to be just as loved and welcomed. Not for their money, but because we know they need Christ just like we do. And we all realize, right, that having lots of money doesn't mean true happiness, does it? Maybe they're here specifically because they're not content with all that they have. We don't know. Unless we reach out and talk. Unless we actually get to know them. But, but favoritism is often making an initial judgment about the worth or value of reaching out to someone based on things that they probably have no control over a lot of the time. And let me be clear as well, that these applications extend to so many things beyond differences in wealth or economic status. This is, just, this is the one James was dealing with and the one he illustrated. But whether it's differences in age, like do you only reach out to those in the same age category? Or education? or background, or ethnicity, or political leanings, or marital status. When an unbeliever comes into your life, or how much more, into our own assembly, just think about what an amazing thing that is. That God has brought this precious person into a place where they could hear the good news about Jesus and experience through our welcome, the love of Jesus. Now, of course, I, and I've I, I got to clarify several things here because this doesn't mean that an unbeliever is going to feel completely comfortable here at church. 
That doesn't mean that. That's not our goal. I don't know if you realize it. Like this. This, this isn't, this doesn't mean that we're not going to speak the truth of the Bible if it might offend someone. The truths of the Bible bother people. Sometimes they bother Christians. They definitely bother unbelievers. And the claims of Jesus and the gospel are often offensive to people. Okay. Showing this kind of welcome isn't trying to make everything as comfortable as possible in the sense that I would actually not share the Bible. But no one should ever come into our assembly, or I say even into our lives, and think that Christian, so-called Christian, didn't care for me because I was this or because I wasn't that. Now, we want everyone, no matter what they are or what they are not, to know that we love them. But not simply that we love them, but that Jesus loves them. And there's hope for them, just like there's hope for us, if we look to Jesus. And that's what I, wanna, I want us to, to end, just by thinking about Jesus for a minute. Of course, we could think about his example of this. This is one of the main things that people got on Jesus for. He spent so much time with the wrong kind of people. But there's something else we can think about Jesus. If we've been rebuked today for our own partiality, confess that, and there's mercy for you because of Jesus. Jesus died for the sin of partiality. But there are two main things in this text about Jesus that I want to leave you with this thinking about. One, did you notice at the end of verse 7 how it says that there, there are people who are blaspheming the name by which you have been called? Or they're blaspheming that precious name that you bear. You ever think about that? That you bear the name Christian? You bear the name of Jesus? You've been like, we've been like stamped, as it were, with the name of Jesus. Don't be ashamed to be known by that name, to be known as a Christian. It's a privilege to bear that noble name. But the last thing is in the first verse. It's what James calls Jesus when he says, Jesus is the Christ, the Lord of glory. There's only one King of glory, and his name is Jesus. Sometimes we think about how we can be so impressed by mere human beings. So impressed, in fact, that we can actually show partiality toward them and against other people. How sad. How low our view of glory. In the end, there's only one person whose opinion is really going to matter. There's only one person so glorious that we should stand in awe of him. Jesus is the glorious Lord 
I think he's the answer to that psalm I read. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up you ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? And James gives you a pretty good idea in that first verse. That Jesus is the king of glory. And though he might, though Jesus might press in on us and correct us and rebuke us through his words, oh, how Jesus loves us. And the king has set the table for us today. And he says, come. Find forgiveness. Find strength in my body and blood. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the wonderful signs I see in our church of the very things that this text is calling us to. Lord, I've heard many times of the love of your people. And I pray that we would be marked by this, that we would be impartial with the gospel, that we would welcome anyone, anyone who's willing to to come and hear of Jesus, that we would look for anyone who, who needs Jesus and that we would look at them the way that you do. They're your image bearers. Lord, we need, we need help. We need grace even as we think about this, of what this might mean for our homes or for our church. I, I don't know all that it means. But, but Lord, I thank you for this text that we could think about it today. And I pray as we think through it this week and then again next Sunday that we would be changed through it. And, and I, pr- I thank you so much, Jesus, that you love us. Thank you. You are our King our glorious King, that though you were poor, today you're the risen, glorious King. Thank you for calling us and for putting your name on us. We love you, Jesus. Amen.